Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Take your Bible and turn to Psalms 110. Good morning. Psalms, thank you. Psalms 110. As we continue on with the promises of Christmas, looking at the five promises, this Christmas season we are focusing on the wonderful promises of God that were fulfilled with the birth of Christ. Five amazing gifts that meet the real needs of humanity and glorify the Father and Creator of all. The first week we looked at the promise of a Savior to rescue God's children from sin. In week two, we saw the promise of a new prophet to teach the world about God. Both promises, both gifts that you and I need above all things. And each of these gifts were promised by God to his children and were meant to be embraced, to be enjoyed and shared with others. And I pray that you've done so far this year. These gifts not only display the love and faithfulness of the Father, but they're also a source of strength, encouragement, and hope in a world that's desperate need of those three things. Today we're going to consider the third promise of Christmas. And that's the promise of a priest who reconciles us to God. It's the promise of a priest who will reconcile us to God. And this promise, once again, as all the others, is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who gave his life in order to satisfy the wrath of God and to bring us into the presence of the Almighty. So what I'd like to do is go ahead and read the passage in which the promise is given. It's found in Psalms 110, the first four verses of that psalm. If you'd read it along silently with me, where the psalmist sings, The Lord says to my Lord, set at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your, of your youth will be yours. Verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Father, we come before you this morning and we just ask, for your wonderful grace to just reside on us this morning as we open up our minds and hearts to receive your word with gladness and with joy. And Father, that you would work among our hearts, Lord, to to, to inform us and to transform our hearts and to recommit our minds and our feet and our hands to do your will, to follow you, no matter the consequences or the circumstances. And Father, may you be glorified May we respond to the Spirit's work. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. Now, to understand this, you and I need to understand who priests are and what their purposes was. Now, I know that we, we did some of this in Leviticus, so this, some of this will seem familiar. But Wayne Grubman, in his book, Systematic Theology, writes this. It's here on the monitor so you can understand it. It says, in the Old Testament, the priests were appointed by God to offer sacrifices. They also offered prayers and praise to God on behalf 
of the people. So they did those two. They offered prayers and praise to God on behalf of the people. In doing so, they sanctified the people or they made them acceptable to come into the God's presence, albeit in a very limited way during the Old Testament period. Of course, we've spent some time in the book of Leviticus this past fall describing the qualifications, the expectations, and the responsibilities of these priests. Moses' brother Aaron was the first priest of Israel along with his sons. And then we learned that the entire tribe of Levi was set apart to serve alongside them in the tabernacle and in the sacrifices. But still the question remains, why are the priests even necessary? We understand the prophets, they're there to declare God's word, to teach the truth, but why were the priests necessary? Well, we're indebted to the teachers at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., who, who gave us these answers. And they, they put them in six type of episodes. And what it is, it's the story of the sacrifice or story of sacrifice in Scripture. At the heart of the story of the Bible is the story of sacrifice. And ironically, this story begins with the colossal failure of self-denial. While Adam and Eve indulged their desire to be God's equal, they plunged themselves and the rest of the world unto God's curse, a world in which sacrifice would now need to be the order of the day. In total rebellion, we are cast out of God's presence. The rest of scripture is bringing us back into God's presence. And as the narrative of scripture unfolds, the need and the nature and the effects of, sac of the sacrifice are slowly revealed. And we're going to look at six episodes in which this happens. The first sacrifice is offered by Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4. There's no mention of sin or blood with this sacrifice. The Bible calls it an offering, a gift, and the idea is one of tribute to a great king and submission to his lordship. Then in Genesis chapter 8, we see the next sacrifice that's recorded. And this is after the flood. Noah offers up a variety of clean animals as a whole burnt offering. And it suggests that the idea of a gift and this gift has an effect on God. The Bible tells us that when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma of the sacrifice, he said in his heart, never again will I curse the ground because of man. Even though every inclination of man's heart is evil from childhood, and never again will I destroy all the living creatures as I have done. The very sin that prompted God's judgment remained in the hearts of Noah and his children. But God promises to never again destroy all of humanity because of his love for them. Number three, the third episode is God not only promises to never destroy humanity, he now promises to bless the nations. In particular, he promises Abraham a seed who would be a blessing to all. Then interestingly, the Bible's next recorded sacrifice, which is in Genesis 22, when God speaks shocking words concerning Abraham's seed, Isaac, his only son. When God thunders from heaven, Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. And what does he tell him to do? Sacrifice him. Incredibly, Abraham obeys. Once again, this idea seems to be that of a tribute and lordship. It all belongs to God and he has the right to take it back, even Abraham's only son. 
the last second, God stops Abraham, as you know the story. The test of Abraham's devotion is over, but not the sacrifice that God said to take place. Instead, God provides a ram to be sacrificed in Isaac's place. And it turns out, and this is what we see in this, it turns out that God actually will accept a substitute. What's more is that God provides the substitute. 400 years later, Abraham refuses to release the Israelites. God promises to strike down the firstborn of every creature in Egypt. But the Lord promises to spare the firstborn of Israel if they take a year-old lamb without defect and sacrifice it and smear its blood on the doorframe of their houses. God says that he will see the blood of the sacrifice. And when he sees that blood is that the angel of death will pass over their homes, sparing them the judgment that Egypt was about to face. And what's more, God says that this sacrificial meal that they will have with that lamb, sacrificed lamb, will be a sign that will set them apart as a nation, as a people, as God makes this distinction between Israel and the rest of the world consecrating them as a special people. And that very night, Israel is spared because of the sacrifice. Now, up to this point, there had been less than a dozen instances of sacrifices recorded in the Bible. It doesn't seem to be a major theme, but that changes with the giving of the law. An entire book of the Bible, Leviticus, is largely given over to detailing all the different sacrifices that Israel is to offer God. There are fellowship offerings and whole burnt offerings, but there are more. The most important of is the sacrifice to atone for sin and guilt. Now all the pieces that have been slowly revealed are now coming together as we read in the law. Only clean animals without defect can be sacrificed. We saw this in Noah's day. Every firstborn Israelite who represents the nation of whole must be redeemed with a sacrificial substitute. Prominent is the taking of life, the shedding of a blameless victim's blood. Again, the idea of substitution is prominent. We're told that if anyone is to bring a sacrifice, he is to lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on his behalf. It's a way of saying that this sacrifice stands for me. And what's about to happen to this animal should happen to me, but it's taking my place. These sacrifices now begin and end every single day in God's temple, presented by priests who serve as intermediaries between God and his sinful people. We see now there is a mediator between God and his people who now do this responsibility. There are additional sacrifices that mark the beginning of each week, each month, and each season. And at the pinnacle of this entire system of sacrifice was the day of atonement. We saw this in Leviticus, a beautiful, wonderful day. The high priest alone who would take the blood of the sacrifice into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle the blood onto the mercy seat and the symbolic throne of God to make atonement for not only his own sins, but also for the sins of the people. And that's where this theme of sacrifice in the Bible stops or at least stalls. For century follows century and nothing 
changes. No new sacrifices are introduced. The old ones are just endlessly repeated day after day, week after week, year after year, on and on. And see, and there lies the problem. They obviously were not getting rid of sin. In fact, they increasingly became a nauseating reminder of just how sinful the people remained. You see, repentance, not ritual, is what God truly requires of his people. It's what he desires. But for Israel, repentance had vanished. And all that was remained was ritual. And so God banished the nation to exile. And then without the temple, there would be no sacrifice. If there's no sacrifice that God will accept, then God's people are as exposed to God's judgment as Egypt was on the night of the Passover. As Isaac was as he lay bound on that altar. Again, you and I now know the story as we come to the promises of God. As Israel approached what we, you and I would call the beginning of the first century, they find themselves not only enslaved by the Romans, but also entrapped by the false teachings of the Jewish leaders and entangled with the spirit of the age with no hope other than the promise of the Messiah's coming. But yet every time one would come proclaiming himself to the Messiah, they would find out that he's an imposter, imposter, imposter. Their hopelessness is captured with the Christmas carol, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, where the writer says, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. It's the dark night. It seems that God has been silent. And as the remnant of Israel cries out for mercy from the Father and for the fulfillment of his promises, the Apostle Paul writes that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that you and I, that we might receive adoptions as sons. Amen? So what we see is that their hope, their encouragement, the promise of a priest who reconciled them to God does not come in the form of just a mere human son of Aaron. It's not just another Levite who can bring them before God. For the sacrifices fail to make any type of permanent solution. We saw this in our study in Leviticus. But yet what we see here in this promise in Psalms is that there would be one who would come of a higher order than that of Aaron, the one of Melchizedek. And we see that this promise is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We see this very clearly in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9, where the writer says, And being made perfect, he, Jesus, became the source of eternal salvation to all who would obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, referring back to the promise given hundreds of years earlier in the Psalm of David of 110. Now, take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Genesis chapter 14. 
In Genesis chapter 14, you and I are introduced to Melchizedek, a shadowy man of mystery. I was going to say an international man of mystery, but I thought that wouldn't do well. But since I did it anyway, there it goes. But he's a shadowy man of mystery, of speculation and wonder. Genesis chapter 14, verse 17, we come upon a scene where Abraham's family has been, has been taken captive by these kings, by, by these ancient kings. And so Abraham takes his servants, his hired warriors, he goes and he rescues them, and he brings them back to a collection of five kingdoms. There's five kings. But what we see here is something interesting in verse 17 of Genesis 14. After his return from the, de- from the defeat of Chelderlamer, and the kings who were with him, the kings of Sodom, went out to meet him at the valley of Sheveth. That is the king's valley. And look at verse 18. And Mechilzedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. And there's an editorial's note there. He was the priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And after uh, Melchizedek gives this blessing, look at Abraham's response. And this is very telling. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now, Melchizedek's name means my king is righteousness. The city Salem means peace. Later in scripture, King David would capture that city and rename it Jerusalem. Now, Melchizedek is a mystery in that not much information is given about his origins, who his mother or father is, who he was born or when he died. There's not much information given about his personality or his character, other than he was a man of righteousness or a king of righteousness, as his name uh, gives us uh, a, a glimpse into. But he's also a man of speculation, is that many different theories surround his identity. Who is this mystery man? Some would say he is Shem, the son of Noah, in his old age. Some would say that it's actually Jesus. Okay, so it's a Christophany. It's a pre-incarnate vision of Jesus. He was the king then. Some would say he was just a, a man, a regular man who worshipped Yahweh. Some would say it was just a great king who actually uh, was a pagan uh, god, but a, a, who served a pagan god. But that doesn't seem what scripture tells us. But also Melchizedek is a man of wonder in that Abram gave him, Abraham gave him tithes and reverence. And what we see in scripture is that one who gives a reverence and submission to another shows that person's authority. So Melchizedek is a man of mystery, a speculation and wonder. Though what we do know is scripture tells us that the promise of a priest who is of the order or the kind or the one who would be like Melchizedek. Though we don't know much about this man, We do know that scripture tells us that Jesus' priesthood, his role would be similar to his. And that Jesus' role as a priest would actually be greater than Aaron's as Melchizedek, as we're going to see here, was greater than Aaron's. And that seems kind of odd for you and I. For as Christians, we love the Old Testament. We read Leviticus. We read the story of Moses. And we see Aaron plays a big part of the Jewish religion. And that leads to ours. And so Aaron is the first high priest, the one that we mostly point to. But what we see in scripture that Melchizedek was actually greater than Aaron's. And I want to share with you five ways real quickly that the priesthood of Melchizedek was better. 
First, it was a universal priesthood. You remember that Aaron's was just national. But we see here is that the, the one who served the Most High, Melchizedek, he, even though he was just a king of Salem, you see that he was the priest of the Most High in that whole area. It was also a royal priesthood. This priest was a king as well. He was a ruler. Aaron was subject to kings. And actually, as we see in the Old Testament, is that the kings and the priests could not do each other's roles. The kings would find themselves in trouble when they would try to do what a priest could do or what a prophet was to do. We also see that it was of righteousness and a peace priesthood, whereas Aaron's could not provide either righteousness or peace. But it was also a personal priesthood. Though much is not known about him, what we see is it was based on Melchizedek's own character and his calling there, as Aaron's was based on descent and heredity and had nothing to do with his character or those that would follow him. We see Eli and his sons who were Levites and sons of Aaron who would wind up themselves being killed as well as Aaron's two sons very early in the ministry. Again, in Hebrews 6.19, the writer remarks that Jesus, that in Jesus we have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. And let me tell you, that's what you and I need. That's what this, this age, this world needs today, is something that is a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. He goes on to write in Hebrews, is that it's a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. In other words, he is a priest who's gone before us, who's written down and gone where, where God himself is, having become, it says, a high priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. While the Levitical sacrifices were repeated endlessly, the book of Hebrews draws our attention to the fact that Christ was sacrificed just once. In Hebrews chapter 7, it says he sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered up himself. And in 9.12 of Hebrews, it says that Jesus entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained an eternal redemption. Not one that had to be repeated in the morning, in the evening, and during the different seasons. And again in chapter 9 verse 26 it is written of Jesus. Now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with the sin by the sacrifice of himself. In other words, not only is the penalty of sin broken, but so is the power of sin. And as we've said so many times, is you, you and I, we're looking forward to when the presence of sin is removed. This whole sacrificial system up to this time has only been a picture, a teaching aid designed, as Paul says in Galatians, to lead us to Christ and to recognize him when he appeared. Now that Christ was here, the picture was no longer needed. And as the writer to the Hebrews again says in Hebrews 10, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. But... He goes on to say that we have been made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ's death on the cross turned aside God's wrath and satisfied it. 
Now, we have just delved into this in the last 13 years. So I I know I'm not sharing anything that you haven't heard before. But again, during this Christmas season, it is so important for you and I to hold on to this, to grab onto it, to embrace it with both hands and share with others. For this is the promise of Christmas. This is the gift that they need. For theirs to accept or theirs to reject, it is our duty to share that with them. Which leads us to the final thing to consider, not in the message, but just in this part. And that's the end of the sacrifice in the Bible. As the heartbeat of, the, of, of Scripture, it ends at the cross. In a story that is so saturated with the repeated shedding of sacrificial blood, it cannot escape attention that sacrifice comes to the end at the cross. At the cross. There is no further or no other need for a sacrifice to be given to pay for our sins before a holy God. Through that long explanation, you and I see that not just Israel, but all of humanity needed a priest to meditate on our behalf before an almighty God. We needed one who would contend with an almighty God to one who would be enable us to approach God and to teach us to worship him with all that we have. Now what I want to do is take a moment and look at how Christ performs that office. I think I've shared with you, and I hope you've grabbed it, is that Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise of a great priest who will bring us and reconcile us to God. But I want to share with you how Christ is performing the office of a priest even today. Now, this, I believe, is on the monitor. It's what I think I meant to show you a little bit earlier. Is that Christ performs the office of a priest by once offering himself as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and to reconcile us to God and by making continual intercession for us before God. So I want to share with you a quick, quick way, three quick ways, or quickly, three ways Jesus functions as our high priest. So with that, let's look at that. Number one, Jesus offered a perfect sacrifice for sin. You understand this. You know this. First Peter 2.24, it says that Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and to live by righteousness or live to righteousness by his wounds. It says that we have been healed. And you and I need to understand that. When we see that Jesus offered a perfect sacrifice for sin, we're seeing that this is the healing for a hurting marriage, for rebellious children, for cancer, there is a healing, for those financial woes, for those struggling for depression, for those that are lame and blind, for those who who are lost uh, 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 in the womb. The Bible says that there is a healing It's the fact that Christ has died for sin and he's become victorious over it. That does not mean that, see, we see that healing and that emotion fixed here and now in this world, but knowing that one day that we will. Therefore, it says that Jesus was made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Why? To make propitiation for the sins of his people. 
In Ephesians chapter 5, the Bible tells us to walk in love. Why? Because Christ loved us and that he gave himself up for us for a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Similar to the animals after the flood. It's a pleasing aroma that God is satisfied. Jesus functions as our high priest, not in sacrificing a, a lamb or a ram or a bull, but by offering himself up so that our sins could be taken away. You see, Christ came to die as an effective penal substitution to propitiate the wrath of God and make atonement for his people. And when I say effective, I mean it does not have to be any longer. There is no other way to heaven except through Christ. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Number two, Jesus also functions by continually bringing us near to God. By continually bringing us to God. The writer of Hebrews says, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, he says, let us draw true near with a true heart and full assurance with our faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with a pure water. You see, and I, you and I must understand that Jesus lives at the right hand of the Father. J.C. Ryle writes in the old paths, paths, an old book that Jesus lives at the right hand of God. He says this, and I quote, That same Jesus who once died for sinners still lives at the right hand of God to carry on the work of salvation which he came down from heaven to perform. He lives to receive all who come unto God by him and to give them power to become the sons of God. He goes on to write that, that Jesus lives to hear the confession of every heavy laden conscience and to grant as an almighty high priest perfect absolution. He is one who could hear your sins and give you absolution. He lives to pour down the spirit of adoption on all who believe in him and to enable them to cry, Abba, Father. You must understand that. There's one who is willing to hear and receive you this morning. When I think of one who tells us to come with an assurance of faith, a true heart of faith, one whose hearts are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed. I feel many times, how can God accept me today? I don't know if you struggle with that. I assume you would. But let me tell you, for those in which he's become the high priest and sacrificed himself, to all those who believe and call upon the name of Christ, he says, come unto me, all you who are heavy laden, and burden, for my yoke is light. Cast all your cares upon him, Peter tells us. Why? For he cares for you. We have a high priest who's sympathetic with us in our sins and in our weaknesses. If you're here today and you're struggling with your sin, if your heart is troubled and you're wondering how true it is, if your conscience, though sprinkled with the blood of Christ, still condemns you, know that you have a high priest 
who receives you before God. He sees you when, you, when you're coming. Now, that almost sounded like Santa. Didn't mean that. But the story of the prodigal son gives us a picture of one who runs before us before we've even asked for forgiveness. Ready to embrace us and to wipe our tears away. I pray, would you come knowing that Jesus will bring you before the Father and the Father accepts you because of the company you keep. You're walking in Jesus' shoes. He loves and accepts his Son and he accepts all those who are called by his name. Then thirdly, Jesus functions as our high priest as he continually prays for us. The Bible says, who is to condemn? Thinking again of your, your sin or maybe your conscience this morning. Maybe you're looking in the mirror and you're condemning yourselves. You hear Satan's words. How can you be a Christian? Maybe you're hearing your wife or your spouse's words. How dare you? How could you? Why don't you? Or someone else's words of condemnation. The Bible says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is the right hand of God, who is now indeed interceding for us. Even Satan, the accuser of the brethren, his pleas against us fall on deaf ears. He gives them the hand, so to speak. Silence. Wiped away, clean. Do you know that this morning? Have you embraced that this morning? Consequently, Hebrews says, he's able to save to them the most, those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. I love this. What gets Jesus up in the morning so that he can make intercession for us? That's what it says. He always lives to make intercession for them. Now, I'm not trying to make a theological sense whether or not Jesus takes naps or not here. What I'm saying is the Bible says that Jesus lives. His purpose, his desire is to intercede for you. There's one God, there's one mediator, Paul writes, between God and man. The man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom, which is a testimony given at the proper time that he is the one mediator. One theologian Richard B. Gaffin writes this. I believe it may be on the monitor for you. It says it doesn't matter how complicated. Look at this. doesn't matter how complicated, how desperate, perhaps even hopeless your life has become. No matter how overwhelmed you may feel by your problems. Grab a hold of this. If you trust, if your trust is in Jesus Christ, you can be sure that he is praying for you now. And through that prayer, he will provide for you the resources to bear or to bring you relief or enable you to carry on. The most important thing that you and I need to learn about prayer is this. First of all, and ultimately, look at this. Prayer is not something that you and I do, but what Jesus does for us. Jesus speaks your name before the Father, the almighty creator of the universe by name. 
Have you grasped that? I need you to take it from just an intellectual Bible verse into a transformation of your heart and let it change how you view life, how you respond to problems and conflict and circumstances and consequences. I, I wish I'd get this ready. I, it's, it's on through some of our things. I don't know if we put it on our, our Facebook page, but we will try to do that tomorrow. But there is this wonderful letter from a Chinese pastor who has been, um, uh, he's been detained by the Chinese government. Uh, small church, but hundreds of his, at least a hundred of his members have been at least one time last week detained. Has anyone read this letter? He writes a letter. And in it, he says, I am ready to suffer for the cause of Christ. You need to read that letter. Can we get that? Let's try to get that on our, our Facebook page and get it around this is a pastor who all the same time is encouraging me, strengthening me, but also convicting me at the same time. Let me tell you, this pastor understands and has internalized the fact that he knows that Jesus is praying for him specifically for that specific problem. That may cost him his life. Jesus offered a perfect sacrifice for sin. He continually brings us into the presence of the Father. And then at the same time, he's continually interceding for you by name. You see, Jesus fulfills God's promise to send a high priest who would be able to reconcile us back to God. It is not enough to be saved from our sins and to have someone just teach us about God. Those are all wonderful and needful things. But then not to be able to approach God and worship or relationship would leave us just as hopeless in so many respects. But Jesus, as the final universal divine priest, is able to bring us peace with the almighty creator of the universe. That's what he says, I believe, in Romans 4, I believe, or Romans 5. Therefore, being justified by grace, we have peace with the Father. Romans 5, 1, I believe. In love, Jesus contended with God satisfying the wrath of God by paying the penalty of our sin and earning our everlasting righteousness. Our response to this wonderful gift is to accept it with true repentance. And I'd like to close with this, so please bring attention to this, for this is so important. The Bible tells us that the message of John the Baptist and Jesus and the disciples was the same. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why were not the sacrifices, the animals uh, 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 permanent? Why were they not um, uh, effective? Because there was no repentance. And what makes Jesus effective is the fact that you and I respond in repentance towards him. The question you may ask, well, what is repentance? It's here on the monitor for you. Repentance unto life is a saving grace by which a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and of apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it and turn to God with the full purpose of an endeavor for a new obedience. Let me give it to you simple. 
Repentance is a heartfelt, sorrowful sin. It sees sin as it sees it. When we say amen, we're saying we agree. That's what confession is. When the Bible tells us to confess with sin, what that means is not just telling them I'm sorry or you got me, I did it, I was caught. But it's saying that I agree with God. That this sin is an unholy rebellion against a holy God. And it's a heartfelt sorrow for sin. It's a renouncing of that sin as I no longer seek the satisfaction satisfaction from that sin. I see its promise as a false promise. And then it's a sincere commitment to forsake it and to walk in obedience of Christ. Repentance includes an intellectual understanding of facts. It's an emotional approval of Scripture. And it's a personal decision to turn from it. Finally, repentance is a gift from God. Paul instructs Timothy that a Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, be able to teach, to be patiently endure, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Why? That God may perhaps grant them repentance. I'd pray this morning that you would pray for repentance if it is not in your heart today. Respond to the role and the functions of Jesus Christ with repentance with a heartfelt sense of grief over sin, a personal hatred of it, a desire to forsake it, and a decision to follow Christ. That's what God has called us to this morning. Let me close with this. Do you understand this morning the work of Christ as the high priest who became a substitute sacrifice for sin? Do you understand it? I pray that you do. If not, the elders will be up up here at the end of the service. I ask Lynn if you can be here for prayer. See Dustin, see I, see someone sitting next to you and say, how can I know this then? Let me ask you, have you repented of your sins? Have you turned in faith that God has accepted Christ's work on your behalf? Do you recognize there is one who has contended for God on your behalf? And then let me ask, are you encouraged, strengthened, and hopeful? that Christ is praying for you even now. If not, I pray that you'd find the hope and the encouragement and the strength from knowing that Jesus fulfills the promise of a high priest who reconciles us back to God. Come to him, for he is the only one that can give us exactly what we need, the ability to approach and worship the Holy One. Every head bowed and every head closed as the worship team comes up. I'll ask Landon if he would come up in a little bit after the song for prayer. And I would ask you to just take a moment to pause again to consider what was spoken, the words of Scripture, the role of Christ. And would you just pray and ask Jesus, how should I respond to the Holy Spirit's work? Do I need to trust in Him more? Do I, do I need to, to trust and rest on his promises that he is praying for me? Have you accepted his work? Would you do so this morning? Father, we thank you for your goodness and your love towards us. We thank you for your work as our high priest. I pray now that you would be magnified above all others. And Lord, that we would see your work as, a, as the sacrifice substitute for sin. 
the fact that you continually bring us into his presence. And I pray that you would do so today. And even the fact that you pray for us. Let us be encouraged and strengthened as you bring the healing that comes from your sacrifice. Thank you so much. And may we share that news with others. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.